we move into Christmas. And there isn't a holiday that I know of that is defined by songs more than Christmas. Far and away, the Christmas season is marked by a distinct change in the songs that we hear in our day-to-day lives and the songs that we begin to sing. All year long, the music in our public life as we go to the store and as we're standing in an elevator or as we are simply tuning into the local radio station just seems like sort of a background hum or a background noise, just the soundtrack of materialism and commercialism and just being out in public. But then there comes a time near the end of November and especially into the beginning of December when all of a sudden the music begins to change in the stores and in the elevators and on the music stations. And noticeably so, the music changes, sometimes annoyingly so. You will be there shopping and you can't help but notice and you suddenly hear the profound chorus of, I saw mommy kissing Santa Claus or grandma got run over by a reindeer. Because every once in a while, though, the stores make a mistake and they actually slip in an actual Christmas carol into the mix of the holiday music that they play, right? And then you hear Hark the Herald Angels Sing, or you hear Silent Night, and all of a sudden that music, that song, in the radio or in the elevator or at the store, it causes us to pause and think, what did the angels herald? What was happening on that silent night. And songs around Christmas, again, more than any other holiday, draw us into the anticipation of the holiday that is to come, of the literally holy day. And then we start to sing these familiar carols at church, and the music, above all, sort of signals the true beginning of our anticipation of Christmas. And it's not just the melodies and the choruses and the songs and the music that's important to us in our singing, though, is it? It's the words that speak to us and remind us of what we're anticipating. And so today, to start off our little Advent series, our our working up towards Christmas, we're going to look at a song that we're given in the Gospel of Luke. And it's a song that we actually don't have the melody for, we don't have the music for, but we do have the words. And it's a song that was sung in anticipation of the very first Christmas as two expectant mothers meet together. One of them, Elizabeth, who is barren and very old, and the other mother, Mary, who is very young and still a virgin. And it's a song that is sung that can teach us how we are meant to anticipate the coming of Jesus, how we should prepare our hearts for what is to come. And Mary teaches us in this song by her posture or her attitude. She teaches us by her knowledge that's exhibited in the lyrics, and she teaches us by her faith and her trust in God. But let's not get ahead of ourselves as we're going to look at the text in the context of the account as it is told by the writer Luke in his gospel. And I'll just pray before we open up God's word and see what this first Christmas song teaches us in how we build our anticipation properly toward the advent of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we get this opportunity by your Holy Spirit to open it, to unpack it, to have it revealed to us. Father, I confess that I feel inadequate to the task, especially in this text, 
It seems so simple, and yet this is a text that is profoundly significant. And so, Lord, I just pray that as we consider the rejoicing and the attitude and the the feeling and the emotion of these two women as they meet together, that we would learn from them, that they would teach us how we should feel about your advent, how we should approach the coming of your Son. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So the Gospel of Luke opens up with an explanation that Luke, who is a Greek doctor by trade, intends to record for his friend Theophilus. And Luke intends a historical account of what happened in the life of Jesus. And I particularly love Luke. Luke is the only writer in the New Testament who is closest to us. He's not Jewish. He's a Gentile. He didn't see Jesus. Uh, He didn't hear the teaching of Jesus directly himself. He heard the gospel from the disciples and from those that were near Jesus, and having heard the good news from the disciples, just as Jesus instructed them, he became a disciple, and then he, became, he started following Jesus. And now here we have Luke looking back, talking to disciples, talking to people who were there, building a historical narrative of the life of Jesus. And he begins in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 1 with two announcements. The announcement of John the Baptist's birth, and then the announcement of Jesus' birth. And both of these births, John the Baptist and Jesus's, are announced by angels. And both of these births are going to be miraculous. But there's no confusing with Luke or with anyone whose birth is going to be greater. Elizabeth's pregnancy will be miraculous because she's barren and she's very old. But Mary's will be uniquely miraculous as she will be a virgin. And Luke says that John will be great before God. But Luke says that Jesus will be the Son of God. So there's no question that even though there's two miraculous births announced and there will be two miraculous people appear on the scene of history, John is the lesser and Jesus is the greater. And after these birth announcements... We come to Luke chapter 1, 39 to 55, where Mary actually visits her cousin Elizabeth. And they're of the same, uh, they're of two different tribes, but they're related somehow. The word is cousin, and, and, but don't get hung up on that. They're just related. They're kinswomen of each other, maybe cousins, uh, maybe some other relation. But we pick up this account of these two incredible women, Mary and Elizabeth, who have been visited by angels, who have been told they're going to have a miraculous birth, and that it's all... It's all happening for them right now, and so, and they know each other, and so they visit one another. And this is what Luke tells us. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. That's John the Baptist. He's not the Baptist yet. He's just, well, he's not even John yet, but... That's the baby, okay, that's leaping in the womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Why is this granted to me, 
that the mother of my Lord should come to me. For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. So this is obviously a very unique meeting in history. These two women, these two mothers, separated by decades in age, but united in God's purpose. Instead of two ordinary village women sharing their fears and expectations of their pregnancy and all the normal things that they would talk about if two pregnant women got together, and I don't even want to imagine what those things are. I'm way out of my depth here as I teach this. This is just one of the reasons this text is difficult for me as a man. I'm here trying to teach a text of two pregnant women who are meeting together, and so I admit I'm already out of my depth. But they are not talking about cribs and, you know, the color of the rooms they're going to paint, you know, pink for a girl, blue for a boy, yellow if you're not sure, um, all of those things. No, the first thing that they talk about and what comes out of their mouth is blessing. So instead of them sharing in their fear and expectation of their pregnancy, we see these two women speaking prophetically through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit resting on Elizabeth and resting on Mary and giving them the faith and giving them the assurance and giving them the very words that they speak. We'll get to Mary's song in a minute, but I don't want to overlook Elizabeth's words either. She says to Mary, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And she's filled with the Holy Spirit, it says. And so her words should echo in our ears like a much earlier promise of God. God said to Abraham when he called him to make him a nation Israel. In Genesis 12, 1 to 3, this is the promise that God makes to Abraham. And there's echoes here in what Elizabeth says. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now we know that God is speaking to Abraham through that he's going to make the nation Israel, and through that nation Israel, all the families or all the nations of the earth will be blessed through Jesus. And, And here now, Elizabeth sees Mary in the fulfillment of this promise and says, blessed is Mary more than all women, because blessed is her child, who is going to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. Elizabeth knows exactly who Mary's baby is. And if there's any doubt that she doesn't know who the baby is, she follows up and says, Why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Elizabeth knows what's going on here. Elizabeth has it all mapped out by the Holy Spirit in her mind. She understands that this is the Messiah. She understands that Mary is going to be the mother of the Son of God. And Elizabeth points us straight to the faith of Mary by saying, Blessed is she who believed what was spoken from the Lord would be fulfilled. 
Well, what was spoken by the Lord? When was it spoken by the Lord? Certainly there's almost a double meaning here because Elizabeth means that Mary believed what the angel had just told her. The angel told Mary that she would bear the Son of God. And Mary believed and trusted that. But Mary also believes the promise of God spoken to Abraham and all down through the prophets, all the promises of the Messiah would be fulfilled. Mary believes all of that and blessed is her. And then the context then of Mary's song, as we understand what Elizabeth has said, is now as Mary opens up in song, it's a response to the joy that these two women have. And it's a response to the knowledge of what is taking place through them. And it is a response to the faith that they have and the belief that God's promises have come to pass. And so Mary's song, as we read it, is not about herself, but it's about God. And it comes from a heart that's bursting with humble joy. Bursting with humble joy in the knowledge of God's promises and that God is faithful to keep them. And this is how this morning, as we look at Mary's song, as we look at this very first Christmas carol, This is how Mary and her song can become a model for how to rightly anticipate the arrival of Christmas and the advent of Jesus. Because Mary is looking forward to this baby that is coming, and she's looking forward to it in the humble rejoicing and the knowledge and the faith that she has in God. Luke doesn't record this song for it simply to wash over us like a song in the department store. Luke records this song for us so that it changes us and it teaches us and prepares us for receiving Jesus properly. So this is the first Christmas song in history, and we'll just take it a few stanzas at a time this morning. The first thing we see is a posture that Mary has of humble rejoicing. She sings, My soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And so Mary makes it plain right off the bat that this song is about God, it's not about her. Her intention in this song is not to make much of herself, but to make much of God. Her soul magnifies God, and her spirit rejoices in God. Why does she do this? She gives some reasons. It says, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. God has looked on her. God has paid attention to Mary, even though her estate or her position in life is very lowly. Mary right away recognizes that God did not choose a queen. God did not choose a wealthy and powerful woman to be the mother of his son. But God has chosen indeed not to do that at all. But as is in the nature of our God, he has chosen a poor girl. Mary says, he's chosen me. It's the little words, it's the little personal pronouns that Mary sings here that tell us how deeply personal this song is, how close to the heart her feelings are coming from. She says, my soul does magnify the Lord. My spirit has rejoiced in my God, my Savior. And this is who our God is. He's mindful of us. His mind is not on the rich and the powerful 
We don't need to perform to get his attention. He does not choose us because we've worked hard enough to get his attention and to make him think that we're worthy addition to his team. God doesn't look across the earth and say, oh, these powerful people, these talented people, these great people, they would be perfect for my kingdom. I'm going to pick the cream of the crop and add them to my team so that my team wins. That's not how God does it. God chooses the humble and God chooses the lowly and he's mindful of us in our lowest state. And this is the thing that we should pick up here is that the more lowly we recognize our estate to be, the more we will rejoice like Mary rejoices. Mary's rejoicing flows out of the fact that she recognizes that she is lowly and not qualified to be this mother of God, not qualified to have the attention of God Almighty, but she rejoices because of her lowly estate. And we will rejoice more like Mary when we recognize our lowly estate and that God is a God who has intentionally chosen the lowly and the humble. She's blessed when God looked upon her as when God looks on us, we are also blessed. And also we see in Mary's humble rejoicing the recognition of her need of a Savior. She says, God, my Savior. Far from Mary being able to save others, Mary recognizes that she needs a Savior herself. She recognizes that she is sinful, that she is not worthy, that she is fallen, that she is not righteous, that she is not holy. She needs a God to save her. She recognizes that her Savior is about to be born. There's a branch of theology called liberation theology which very correctly recognizes that God is a just liberator. God is a savior. This is a character of God that he emphasizes over and over again in scripture. God sets people free as we've just spoken on for the last four weeks. And it has a strong emphasis, this liberation theology on social justice. And that is correct and that is good. But liberation theology and the idea of God or Jesus being our Savior is a little bit dangerous because if you focus only on liberation theology, it's only a partial theology. Because God does more than liberate in a social sense. Mary's song, viewed through a liberation theology lens, is interpreted as Mary needing to be saved from poverty because she's poor. Mary needs to be saved from the patriarchy of a male-dominated society because she's a woman. Mary needs to be saved from Rome because she's a member of a captive state, Israel. Mary needs to be set free from the stigma of being an unwed mother and many other things like that. And so liberation theology looks at this and says, Mary looks to God as her savior from poverty, from patriarchy, from captivity, from, from scandal, whatever it is. And maybe we feel the same about ourselves. We want God to save us from our predicament, from our circumstances. But we won't be able to celebrate and rejoice, we think, until God sets us free of our circumstances and gives us the life that we want. But that is not the salvation that Mary expects in this song from the birth of her son, nor what Mary is saved from. Because after the birth of Jesus, Mary is still poor. After Jesus is born, she is still a woman in a patriarchal society. Mary is still a captive state to Rome. And there are hints in the Gospels later on that the rumors continue to swirl around Jesus' legitimacy. 
So when we look at this song, we have to understand that when, when Mary says, he who has mighty, is mighty has done great things for me, she's not talking about God pulling her out of poverty or God somehow banishing Rome from Israel's borders. Mary is not talking about a savior who has uh, somehow reorganized society and set her free from a patriarchal society. Mary is talking about a savior who has introduced her into the plans for her spiritual salvation. From Eve to Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to Ruth and Boaz to David to Mary, God's plan of salvation has come down to her, and in its own way, it also comes down to us. That's the Savior that Mary is singing about. She doesn't hope in her being a good person or hope in her going to tabernacle enough. She doesn't hope in her being righteous or good enough. Her hope and therefore her worship flows from the mercy of God in choosing her and her being the recipient of of his grace by believing, by trusting. And that's how you have to receive the grace of God because you trust him and not yourself. You count him faithful and not yourself faithful. And so the first lesson that we learn from this song in the first stanza is that we As we anticipate the coming of Jesus, the posture that we are to have is this humble rejoicing that Mary takes in her song, that God would be mindful of us, that God has chosen us, that God will save us, and then let that be the source of our joy and our rejoicing. But Mary's joyful anticipation of Jesus doesn't just come from her humble recognition of a Savior, but also from her knowledge of the nature and character of God. Mary is not ignorant about who her God is, and she is able to rejoice the way that she does because her knowledge of God is so thorough and so profound. She says, And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arms. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. Mary is singing here from a position of confident knowledge of who God is who God was, who God is, and who God will always continue to be. Her rejoicing is all the more powerful because it's not coming from uncertainty or ignorance, but from knowledge and assurance. And what stands out to us in this refrain is the repetition of, he has, he has, he has. God has done these great things, and Mary is thrilling in the knowledge of her God and his nature and his character. And in these short stanzas, she is in her own mind almost summarizing the history of Israel and God's interaction with her people. But for us on the other side of Advent, her words take on their present and future tense even more fully. She says, from generation to generation, God is going to work. From generation to generation, God has worked. And I think Mary sees that that generation to generation is going to continue on into the future. God is going to continue to work into future generations. These things that God has done, God will not cease doing. He will continue to do through the son that she is celebrating right now. And we can compare the works of God here that she talks about to the works of Jesus as the Son of God. She praises God that he has shown strength with his arm. And in Jesus, he shows us by his miracles the mighty works that he could do. Mary sings of God the Father that he has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. And we know that Jesus rebukes the Pharisees and the scribes and the lawyers and he commends the humble. We think of the 
parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector at the temple. The Pharisee, you know, raising his hands up to pray to God and saying, thank you, Lord, that you didn't make me like this tax collector over here, like this publican. You know, thank you that you've, you know, you've given me the faith that I have and the life that I have. And it seems like such a noble prayer at the time. And then off to the side, the tax collector is beating his breast with his head bowed. And he just says, have mercy on me. And Jesus says, it's the latter. It's the latter who went up from the temple righteous and justified, not the former. Jesus, just like God the Father, brings down the mighty from their thrones and exalts the humble. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones, he says. And in Jesus' ministry, he largely overlooked the authorities of Rome or Herod or the temple Sanhedrin. They were almost not on his radar at all unless they came and confronted him. He, he basically just ignored them. Even before Pilate, he didn't even bother to say anything. Pilate's asking him questions. Are you the king of the Jews? Are you the son of God? Well, you say that I am. Jesus really has nothing to do with, you know, Pilate, do whatever you're going to do. It's not you who's doing it. It's the Father who's in control of all of this. And so in his own way, Jesus brings down the mighty from their thrones because they have no authority over him. And he says, and God exalted those of humble estate. Mary is looking back on what God has done with Israel. But we can see now that Jesus has come, that Jesus lifted up fishermen. He lifted up the lame. He lifted up lepers and tax collectors and, and women and other people in society who in that society would not have been of high estate. We think of the woman who washed his feet with her hair, probably some sort of escort in the city who the Pharisees and the scribes and the good religious people were shocked he would even allow near her. And yet, he lifts her up. He lifts up the humble and exalts those who are humble. And he calls his followers brothers and sisters. Then Mary sings that he has filled the hungry with good things, and obviously Jesus not only offered bread to the hungry, but the bread of life. John 6, 26, 27, Jesus answers those that were following him in crowds as he was teaching and breaking bread and feeding. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Jesus says, I will fill you up with things that your hunger can't even imagine. And he says, in the rich, he has sent away empty. We think of Jesus sending the rich young ruler away because he could not leave his riches. And Jesus loved him, and he was sad that he sent the rich young ruler away empty at that time. But he sends him away empty knowing that as long as they hold on to whatever it is they think that is filling them up, they will never be able to receive the good thing from Jesus. And so Jesus has to send the rich away empty and let them feel that emptiness in the hopes that they will turn to him. Maybe you feel rich in your finances, or you feel rich in your relationships, or you feel rich in your beauty, or you feel rich in youth and opportunity, and yet you still feel empty. And when the rich finally start to get hungry for better answers, Jesus is there to fill them up with good things. Jesus sends the rich away hungry and empty, not because he wants to harm them, but because he wants them to feel that emptiness. And then come and turn to him and be filled with what is good. 
So these mighty works, the mercy, the scattering of the proud, the bringing down the mighty, the justice for the lowly, the filling of the hungry, the humbling of the rich, God has done, God is doing now, God will do all these things through Jesus. We've seen him do it. And Mary is rejoicing, is amplified by her knowledge of a God's mighty work and the work that he's doing in her and will be doing by her son. And so as we learn from Mary, we learn that we have to remind ourselves and preach to ourselves and study the scripture and know God. And as we get to know God better and better and better and recognize his mercy and recognize his justice and recognize his promises, our rejoicing will be amplified like Mary because we're not rejoicing from a position of ignorance. We're not rejoicing from a position of confusion. We're rejoicing from certainty and assurance in the character and the nature of our God. So Mary rejoices humbly from her lowly estate in recognition that God is mindful of the lowly. And then Mary rejoices out of her knowledge of the character and the goodness and the action of God and that he will continue to be faithful. And that brings us to the final, I'm sure there's many more lessons, but the final for this morning lesson from this and the final stanza of this song of Mary, we learn that her rejoicing is amplified by her faith in God's promises. It's in her humility, it's in her knowledge, and finally it's in her faith. She sings, He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. And so Mary begins her song by speaking of God's faithfulness to her personally, that God has recognized her, that God is a God of her personally. He's the God of us personally. He's our God who we rejoice in. He's our Savior. Mary speaks personally, but then she concludes her song by speaking of God's faithfulness to Israel and to all families of the earth. Mary is looking backwards here in history through the promises of God. She's looking beyond the captivity of Israel to the days of the kings. She's looking to the time of Solomon and to David. And then she's looking back through the time of the judges before the kings and the time in the promised land. And she's looking back through that in history to the wilderness and then across the Red Sea to Jacob and to Isaac and to Abraham and even all the way back to Eden. And as she looks back through the history of God's promises and what God has done, she hears the sound of the promise, even as Elizabeth did, that the seed of the woman shall bruise the serpent's head. And so we have that promise given to the mother of all humanity, that her seed will one day crush the serpent. And Mary in this song, filled with the Holy Spirit, looking back through all of these promises, through all of this activity of God, through all of this action, hears this promise and then can move forward again from that promise given in Eden. She then can go forward to Abraham and to Isaac and Jacob and David that God has been faithful to his people to bring about this promise that all the families of the world may be blessed under the promise made first to Eve and then to Abraham. But specifically, this first Christmas song then in the context of Mary is speaking of one offspring. Not talking about the seed of Eve and all of humanity, not talking about the nation of Israel as the seed of Abraham, talking about one offspring, talking about one person. 
Of all the promises of God in Mary, it comes down to this. Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. That's the promised offspring that's anticipated in Mary's son, the Son of God. That's who Mary is singing about. That is why she is rejoicing, because she has faith. She believes in this promise of God. God has done exactly as he has spoken to Mary's forefathers. God has done exactly as he promised that in you all nations of the earth shall be blessed. And in the coming birth of her son, God's son, she saw this promise being fulfilled and she believed. Mary knew that with God all things are possible. She had this promise delivered by an angel and this was enough for her. And on the strength of the word which came from God, her heart was full of rejoicing and song. And when we just pause for a minute and when we just consider the significance of what it is that Mary believed, what she had faith in, that she would be the earthly mother of the Son of God. That's what she believed. Can you imagine the faith that you need to have to believe that after all these thousands of years, you are the recipient of this promise to Eve, to Abraham, to Jacob, to Isaac, to David, to Jeremiah, to Isaiah, that Mary believed she was going to be the earthly mother of the Son of God. And then we see how unhesitantly she received and believed that promise. Mary showed as much or more faith than any prophet. Abraham doubted and Sarah laughed when God told them they were going to have a baby and he would be the child of promise. Moses argued with God that he could not set the people free from Egypt. Gideon needed a sign that he was going to be used of God simply to win one battle. And yet Mary received the word of this angel and believed that she would be the mother of God's son on earth. Remember what Elizabeth said, blessed is she who believes. Mary believed. Blessed are all who believe. John 1.12 says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. This is all about faith. Mary's rejoicing comes out of deep-rooted faith and trust that God is faithful to his promises. And so we share in Mary's joy. It's the joy of a Savior who is completely hers. Not by her works, but by her knowledge of God and his promises and faith in those promises. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon writes of this joy that we should have in our salvation the way Mary does. He says, I am sure, dear friends, the remembrance that there is a Savior and that this Savior is yours must make you sing. 
And that's what we have to capture this morning. That's what Mary's song is teaching us, is that the rejoicing that we should have at the advent of Jesus, at the fact that we have a Savior, should make us feel like singing the way it made Mary feel like singing. And Spurgeon goes on, he says, and if you set side by side with it, the remembrance that there's a Savior should make us sing. And if you set side by side with that, the thought that you were once sinful, unclean, vile, hateful, and an enemy of God, then your notes will take yet loftier flight and mount to the third heavens to teach the golden harps the praise of God. Boy, I don't write sermons like that. Spurgeon's like, he's on another level. <laughs> right? But he says, just the remembrance that you're saved should cause you to sing. And then if, like Mary, you remember your lowly estate and that you were once hated by God and you were a rebel and that you rejected God and you are, you're not qualified and there's nothing you can do to qualify yourself and you take the fact that you have a Savior and you remember with humility your lowly estate, Spurgeon says, whoa, your notes will take a loftier flight as you sing. You'll even teach the harps of heaven the praise of God. So in this first Christmas song from Mary, we are able to learn how to properly anticipate the coming of Jesus, rejoicing that he is our Savior, knowing that his character and his works are there for us, that he is steadfast, that his character does not change, and trusting in his promises fulfilled. So the question for us as we finish this song is, what are you anticipating this Christmas? How are you anticipating whatever it is you're anticipating this Christmas? And perhaps this year, more than ever, we have the blessing, and yes, I'll call it a blessing, that COVID has somehow put a damper on all the commercial activity around Christmas, that Christmas is just a little bit materialistically dimmed this year, and the spotlight is not quite so bright on the commercial holiday cheer, so that like Mary, we can this year more than ever rejoice more and more fully in the arrival of our Savior with the knowledge of God's mercy and the faith in his promises fulfilled. And so we should take Mary as a pattern for our worship. And not just at Christmas, but all year long. The pattern of our worship should be rejoicing that God has sent us a Savior in spite of our humble and low estate. And we should be filled with the knowledge of the perfect mercy and love of God. And we should trust that in his promises to which he is faithful. Mary is our pattern for how to prepare our hearts to rejoice and to worship. Not just at Christmas, but certainly at Christmas, but all year long. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this first song that Mary sang, this first Christmas carol. And I do pray, Lord, that I would learn from it. It's a, it's a text, Lord, I admit that I often sort of breeze over a little too quickly. And yet when I look at these two women, Elizabeth and Mary, and I consider their rejoicing, and I consider the spirit that they are filled with, and I consider the clear knowledge they have of you and your works, I am humbled, humbled, humbled. That far too often, my knowledge of my salvation and my knowledge of you does not lead me to sing. Not that anybody would want to hear that, <laughs> but I should sing on my own, because you want to hear it. And so, Father, help us to make a joyful noise to you, even now. God, our Savior. 
Help us to embrace these Christmas carols, not just in recognition of this season, but in all of our worship, that our hearts would sing to you as Mary does. She's our model. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.